Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, People have been complaining, understandably, that there is a problem with the podcast feed uh, some people are getting the podcast a day late. This is a problem with Apple, apparently having to do with some updates of Apple's software. We're working on it. We're trying to figure it out. If you are hearing this a day late and we haven't solved the problem yet, one very easy way to handle it is to go to your app store and download the app from SoundCloud, S-O-U-N-D-C-L-O-U-D, and then look for Commentary Magazine. SoundCloud hosts our podcast And if you use the SoundCloud app, uh, you will get the podcast pretty much the second that we post it um, after we record it. So that is the that is the uh, the fix to the temporary fix to the problem or a permanent fix. A lot of people do use the SoundCloud app, but I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a solution to the problem if you are experiencing the problem. So. Uh, we have an infrastructure, we have an infrastructure bill probably going to be voted on today. The only interesting question now is the margin, how many Republicans will vote for it. Uh, there are indications that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will vote for this trillion dollar bill, which features, I believe, only 275 million in new spending. Is that, I mean, I, the, the number has been bouncing around from 500 million to 275 million. And the truth is that from a Republican budgetary hawk perspective, it's hard to imagine that it could have been any better than $275 billion uh, as, a, as a giant infrastructure bill. I mean, I remember in 1986, there was an infrastructure bill that was $86 billion that Ronald Reagan supported. These are expensive bills. And, and so the, the process, in fact, the bipartisan process may have had more of a positive effect than people realize in the world of the possible. Meaning if you're going to promote, propose this kind of thing, it's going to go through, it's going to cost a lot of money and uh, libertarians uh, may scoff. And I'm sure there's a lot of bad stuff in it that people will be making hay about for years, but there it is. And it is going to pass uh, so that people in Congress, uh, Senate, the Senate can say, we really did come together despite our differences to try to do something good for the American people. Anybody got a response to what I just said? People. No, that sounds about right. I mean, it's, it's a done deal. There's really no reason to, to argue over it. The next front is the reconciliation bill and nobody really is all that energized about about infrastructure anyway, besides very partisan hawks who will find this to be anathema in one particular or another. Um, This is the sort of thing that people run for re-election on. So, and, you know, as you've been saying, the restoration of the bipartisan process of actually legislating big deals. So, you know, good Okay, but can I just point out that we, Noah sounds like I feel after reading the the new reconciliation uh, outline, which is hung over because this this infrastructure bill is more like watching a three-legged race. It's not just this nice piece of bipartisan legislation running to the finish line. It's attached permanently to this other monstrosity, which I know we are all going to discuss. And so any enthusiasm we might have is a little muted by the fact that Nancy Pelosi has already said they're not going to pass one without the other, that the room for negotiation is impossible with the with the reconciliation bill because it's designed to avoid allowing Republicans any uh, input on it. It's going to be forced through in a partisan way. And you, I, I, th- I find it difficult to, to praise the one knowing the other is, is hanging in there in the wings. Okay, so well, let's I, you, we tease that out a little bit because I don't know if I agree. So all the effort that was done on the part of these bipartisan legislatures to cleave off hard infrastructure from human infrastructure, social infrastructure, what have you, uh, to make a political statement, you're saying that's not operative, that voters will not make that distinction. I I think it will... Voters might make that distinction if that's what they go back to their constituents saying, but it's not going to be the only message because of what comes next. It depends. Look, we've got this is all happening. This infrastructure vote is happening, what, 
likely today. But Bernie Sanders is already out there all over on TV saying, we have the most historic spending coming your way to help working families since the New Deal. He's already working on the next phase. And I think getting the message about infrastructure, it's likely to be overshadowed for some people by what's coming after it and the tax increases and the spending that's coming after that. Perhaps it's that's that's how I'm seeing it. Um, I'm I can't really say that's for sure what's going to happen, but it, it's kind of interesting to me that the messaging from the Democrats is being dominated right now, not by what the infrastructure bill is going to be, but by Bernie Sanders talking about the reconciliation spending. Okay, but so let's 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 go through the same. The New York Times headline on the, on its website right now in relation to this reconciliation package is. Senate Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget blueprint would be the biggest expansion of the social safety net in nearly 60 years. Okay, so um, that they're referring to 1965. They're referring to the Great Society, right? It, it, this is Great Society too. Uh, Great Society bills were passed in 1965. That was 50, what, 56 years ago. Uh, here we are with Great Society too. That cuts both ways. Uh, Democrats are thrilled to be able to promise this. We have no sense that the American people are in on a wild expansion of the size of the federal government of this sort. We have an extraordinarily divided Congress, a politically divided system that is as close to 50-50 as it has ever been in American history. Um, and Democrats are shooting, uh, swinging for the fences uh, because this is a budget bill. It can pass with only 51 votes. That would be 50 Republicans against, 50 Democrats for, and the tiebreaker being the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Uh, that's in the Senate. In the House, Democrats have a three-seat majority. And while there is wild enthusiasm for this and many aspects of the Democratic House, there are there are a few Democratic legislators who are going to lose their jobs if this bill passes and who may decide that it is better for them to kill it than to have it survive. Well, I think it's, in very, it's a very interesting time, I think, for um, – something of this size in terms of the social safety net to to uh, come down the pike because um, we're at a point where the right is even all about uh, give me, give me, give me. Uh, uh, what what can you what can you do for me? Um, so I so I think the uh, the the question of whether or not the American public is uh, on the whole, into this, ready for it, opposed to it. Um, this again comes down to that sort of mysterious uh, factor that uh, we've discussed before that no one necessarily has a handle on, which are the people who aren't terribly partisan in this country, which is you know the the, the sort of plain old Americans who aren't uh, obsessed with the left or the right. Um, and I don't know exactly where they, where they stand on this. Well, this is the risk, isn't it? That I was trying to tease out with Continetti last week. That he didn't seem particularly amenable to, which is that the, that part of the American pop, voting population that you're describing, Abe, will be favorable to the hard infrastructure bill, but will be energized by the reconciliation bill. And everybody on the right who's a culture warrior will you mean be energized, energized by the reconciliation the, bill. Hold on. And the left, mean, hold on. Noah, 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 Noah. You mean energized against the reconciliation bill? Energized against, energized okay. for, having an opinion whatsoever. The hard infrastructure bill just doesn't raise the hockles because it is not a culture war issue. Right. But so just to just to follow through with this, what you're saying is infrastructure is basically sort of like a a classic government program thing that both parties do unless they are unless they have a significantly libertarian mindset at the moment that it's going on where the idea is this is not something anybody should do we shouldn't be spending money on this stuff which is fine but that tends not to be the sort of governing idea infrastructure is one of the two or three or four things that are that that remain particularly in relation to 
transit, mass transit, bridges, stuff like that, remain a federal uh, obligation. To drill it uh, down further, yeah, but, but not libertarian, not progressive, ideological. Mm-hmm. If you're an ideological person, you get really energized by this sort of thing. Most Americans are not ideological, not in the way that we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I'm saying even ideologues of a certain kind don't necessarily get energized by debates over infrastructure. I'm sorry. That's, that's the mistake. That's one of the reasons that you're going to see maybe 17 Republicans vote for this bill, even though it is a democratic wish list bill. I mean, that's, that would, that will be a sea change in the American uh, political dynamic over the last 15 years, if that happens, but let's go to the reconciliation package. The reconciliation package is a gigantic bet by Democrats that they can muscle their way into great society spending. And I'm going to go back to the simple fact that after the 1964 election, when Lyndon Johnson won the what was then the largest landslide in American history, uh, he had a 180-seat margin in the House and I think 68 Democratic senators. And now there is a three-seat Democratic margin in the House, and the Senate is split 50-50. There was a national consensus for the Great Society. He got Medicare. He got Medicaid. He got all kinds of stuff besides that, and there was a reason for it. There was an electoral mandate for it. There is no electoral mandate for $3.5 trillion in new spending just because a Democratic president won by four points instead of 20, which is how many Johnson won by, and because the House is governed by a Democratic majority of three, and the Senate isn't governed by a Democratic majority of nobody. And that's where we are. Like, uh, there are dozens of House members who can just kiss their asses goodbye well, if the, this bill passes. This is where the, the, the rhetoric has an element of wish fulfillment right now, right? Because you keep hearing, you keep certainly hear Bernie Sanders saying this, Ron Wyden and others going, the American people are with us on this. They, they, it's almost as if they, it's like they've all read the secret. They're like, if I believe it, it will happen. But they're actually, manifesting it. They're manifesting, they're manifesting the bill. billions of dollars of spending. That trillions. Americans want a trillion. Sorry, you're right. Um, so how 20th century of me to, to be talking about billions. Um, but I think that's actually, that that's where already you see even mainstream media outlets, both the leads and both the New York Times piece about it and the Washington Post piece about it were to me very telling. They both framed it as, wow, this is the biggest spending on domestic stuff and, and social programs since the Great Society. And they didn't say it in a kind of yippy skippy kind of way. It was like, holy cow. This is large. So if even the outlets that tend to be very supportive of such spending are writing about it in this way, I, once it's filtered through and looked through, I mean, we've all started reading the actual text of the bill. It's massive. Um, we're going to be finding a lot of stuff that's highly questionable. It's not just going to be the occasional bridge to nowhere as it is with infrastructure. Or I would add the ideological stuff that's in there about taxing um, mileage, people's driving mileage, that there's a pilot program embedded in that. There is some ideological stuff in there, but as Noah said, and you said, John, it's going to be only for the people who really dig for it. This other package, by by contrast, is full of stuff that lots of Americans are not entirely sold on. I mean, look, this bill is bananas. It's bananas. We're talking about making community college free throughout the United States. Two years of community college, which is essentially what community college is. All preschool free. We're talking about extensions of uh, the monthly payments going to families with children. You know, in perp- practically in perpetuity, which is the which is the revivification of welfare, of child welfare, which was eliminated in 1996 after 30 years of devastation caused to the you know families of the poor by the substitution of the state for fathers in the form of these subsidies now we can have arguments about the about the viability or wisdom of all these programs separately but you aggregate them like this and you are putting the political system in a totally bizarre place, which is you don't push 
something this size with the political realities that we face at this moment. We understand why people want to do it. You understand why people, you know, think, okay, I've got, I got, you know, 12 months until the 14 months until the next election. And then the Republicans are probably going to win. So we've got to put through everything that we can possibly put through. But you are talking about setting up Democrats who are not on the far left for a catastrophic calamity. I mean, this is, this is aside from the horrors that the policy represents, this is a political Armageddon for everybody in the Democratic Party who is not Bernie Sanders or Ron Wyden. I mean, I know a lot of them pretty much lean in this direction, but I mean, this is tagging them with a transformational quality that the political moment does not possess. By definition, they're bulldozing ahead better, not building back better. (laughs) Democrats lost 15 seats in the House in 2020. They didn't win 180 seats. They lost 15. But why don't we think this is designed to pass? Manchin and Sinema are already on record saying they're not going to pass it based on this current iteration. And that was before language was released. Why do we think this is designed to pass? Why isn't it just designed to be martyred and energize the progressive base? That's even worse. I'm sorry. Politically, that's even worse. So you energize the progressive base. You give everybody, everybody who is running against Democrats in any district in which Republicans have a whisper of a chance of turning the tide and taking back seats or winning seats. And you are handing them a baseball bat. Well, and they can't make the it was the obstruction of the Republicans argument for this one because they set up a deliberate reconciliation process that would uh, go around any efforts to to negotiate or compromise. That was the whole point of it. Avoid a filibuster by doing this through reconciliation. Right. And I think there, again, I, I mean, I understand why, you know, 80-year-old Bernie Sanders wants this, you know, as a as a as a legacy even if it passes or it doesn't pass. But the idea that you would push it if Noah you're right and they they're pushing it with with full knowledge that it's not going to pass. What is it they gain from this? Well, okay. Ex- it, yeah, go ahead, Abe. Go there ahead. is I mean it's 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 not as strategically thought out. Um, as as or as tactically considered as as the scenarios and, and realities you're discussing, but I mean there is the idea for someone, let's say like an AOC, where you just push ahead with this stuff um, every opportunity you get because in time there will be an opportunity to make it pass, uh, and you are simply making it more thinkable. And it so does that's become the over- more thinkable. So that's yeah. the Overton window yeah. argument, right there. <clears throat> They're shifting the Overton window so that that which is unthinkable now becomes thinkable. The thing is, it's not that this is unthinkable. That's what strikes me as interesting. Obviously, this is the great ideological divide in American politics, right? It's been the great ideological divide in America since the 1960s. Should government play a leading role in both the structure of the economy and the and the rules and and ways in which people live their private lives and make decisions about how, what they're going to do with their kids and their schooling and this and that and the other thing, or should it not? And so there's nothing unthinkable about taking every single proposal made by a liberal or leftist think tank over the last 20 years and putting them all together in one bill, each of them independently or separately has some kind of an argument to be made for it and against it. Collectively, there is no argument for it. The argument for it is it's really, 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 really big. That's not an argument. That's a, I hate Trump. We won. We're going to shove through what we want until you take the, you know, until you take the keys and the gavel away from us. That's not an argument. That's not an argument that can be won. I think that's one of the reasons why Christine you were so struck by the way this is being covered because as this becomes closer and closer to reality, the political consequences of this kind of thing start becoming more and more evident. 
Well, that's that's not the argument that they make. <clears throat> the people who are enthralled by this sort of thing, they are they're enamored with it because it is anti-incrementalist. It is the entire agenda in a single bill. It rejects entirely the notion that the American system functions and works in small measure. That it that it, it things happen slowly and only partially, and that everybody's ox will be gored in the process of negotiating a bill. It's just against that. So it is conceptually both the entire democratic agenda, which they support, and a means to circumvent the American system, which thwarts democratic uh, pr- uh, objectives routinely. Right. Well, that's what energizes. That's what enlivens them. I mean, the, the stuff in the bill, that's good. But really, you know, sticking it in the craw of the people who think that this system you know, is designed and is perfected and manages competing interests in a way that it, that maintains social comedy. That's what really gets them up. In the That's a good point because to see this in, as part of a larger trend among the so-called, you know, uh, party that loves governance, when in fact it's the same kind of logic about packing the Supreme court about and abolishing the electoral college, about adding new States. It's this idea that we have this system that was conceived in, in, you know, questionable ethical and moral circumstances because of slavery and is now corrupted. And only we, the progressive, you know, idealists in the world can fix it. And the way to fix it isn't to tinker and to be pragmatic and to embrace, actually embrace pragmatism as a, as a really strong and powerful force against ideological polarization on both sides, but instead to say, burn the house down, you know, negotiation is compromise. Uh, Compromise and negotiation are the enemy here. That's actually, if you look at what groups like Justice Democrats and the Squad and Sunrise Movement, how they talk about the process of getting things done in society, it's radical. The language is radical, no compromise. It's very, um, it's kind of chilling if you start thinking about them having enough power to make things happen. Right now they don't. But I've been, I've noticed in the last few weeks, the squad has become more emboldened again in their rhetoric. Corey Bush is once again going on and on about defunding the police. All of this stuff that the postmortem 2020 moderate Democrats were warning about, it's back again. Didn't take long for it to, to kind of swing back. So I think Noah's right. Like we need to see this in a broader context of how the progressive left is attempting to shift the terms of debate for how our democratic system has has heretofore operated. Well, you know, I think in that sense, you know, something we've struggled with on this, on the podcast a lot and that I think about is um, the how of um, how the squad uh, and its allies um, managed to wield such outsized power, why they aren't rejected more often um, and why their ideas aren't rejected more often as be, because they're, they're not um, seemingly uh, 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 in step with the American people. Um, so why, why did Democrats go along? And I think it's because they get a choice. If you're a Democrat, you get a choice put to you um, that, that scares you, which is do you want to be on record as uh, not being uh, for this transformational thing this this like for example the this reconciliation blueprint you want to be you want to be not not on not on board with that and therefore essentially on the other side or you want to suck it up a little and go with us even though we're we're, we're not popular and and to add to that because that's an important point is that this is why bernie sanders has used the word historic to describe this multiple times because it really is abe's right it's about are you on the right side or the wrong side of history those are the terms it's not can we make a deal which is how our system is structured to work it's are you on the right side or wrong side of history um i i want to read a quote uh that cnn is peddling because it did a special last night on AOC, on Alexander Ocasio, an hour-long special with Dana Bash called Being AOC. She's a second-term congressman who ended up in Congress because she snuck in by winning, by beating the uh, the uh, incumbent Democrat by 5,000 votes in a primary in which 25,000 votes were cast in New York City. Okay. Here's the quote, quote, I've decided that being me is more important than being anything else. There is something paradigmatic about this. It is one of the worst things that any human being could ever say. It is more important to be me than to be anything else. How about being good? How about being charitable? How about being just? How about being fair? How about being... You know, uh, striving for nobility or striving for 
you know, uh, to, to, to fulfill an ideal or something like that. No, no, no. <clears throat> Being me. And there you have this identitarian, uh, this, this um, uh, alliance, theoretical alliance between the identitarian AOC. I am a woman. I am a Latina. I'm Latinx, whatever she wants to call herself. I am a leftist. What I am is more important than anything else. And I think in that you see on the one hand uh, a kind of uh, explanation for how she is so uh, kind of resolutely, uh, you know, determined to say whatever it is she wants to say and to push the conversation wherever she wants to go. And what the source of this is, which is uh, favorite podcast were deep solipsism. Like this is not about helping the American people. It's about AOC and the squad achieving their personal meanness. Um, uh, which again, I think is one of the reasons that this could be an epic historical disaster because this is not being driven by a kind of thorough understanding of how to change American society for the better. It is about being me somehow, um, you know, uh, and that that is, that is now, that is now a stand in for, you know, politics as a whole in some bizarre sense. I mean, I guess that's worth exploring in so far as, the pitch for this thing is bound up not just in what it is and what it does and what it'll mean for you, but what it means about them and what it says about them and their priorities and their compassion and their capacity to see the bigger picture and how great they are at doing stuff. And if, if the, the response to this is tepid, lukewarm, or even hostile, then yeah, branding it all about you is going to seem like a really bad, bad strategy. In retrospect, but it's but it's the also it's it's the kind of rise of the political leader as Instagram influencer, right? It's the it's the kind of values that go with that. It's about having fans and followers, not constituents. And she AOC is, I think, unfortunately, the leading edge of that. And it's it's a bipartisan motivation because the feedback is vast. Social media has obviously accelerated this trend. But it, but the mainstream media has played right into it because it's like, oh, let's get that. You know, this is why CNN is spending an hour on a pretty obscure, from a Democratic perspective, in terms of representation, a pretty obscure member of Congress. Right. Um, but they see her. She is she was tagged from the beginning as the new kind of politician we need. And she has she has promoted herself as such. And it doesn't really matter what the substance is. It's all it's all how it appears through the filter of uh, what her fans think and her, her responsiveness to them. You know, I want to go into this question of the relation of fandom to, um, you know, to sort of politics. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about Made In. How does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? The short answer is they have access to the right kitchen tools. Made In's professional quality cookware and kitchenware. With that cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking... You should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. If quality and craftsmanship is important to you, you should check out Maiden, the cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, and wine glasses. Maiden produces professional quality cookware and knives for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made to last, lifetime guarantee. The cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven, and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and stay sharp. Made in better cookware for better meals. Right now, Made In is offering... Our listeners, 15% off their first order with promo code COMMENTARY. This is the best discount available anywhere online for made-in products. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code COMMENTARY for 15% off your first order. That's madeincookware, M-A-D-E-I-N-C-O-O-K-W-A-R-E.com slash commentary. Use promo code COMMENTARY. So we got this AOC show on CNN. We have... uh, 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 
an article in, I believe, L, although maybe Vogue, about White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. It's Vogue. Uh, which is Vogue, excuse me, which is all about how she has changed the nature of press secretaryship because she's so non-confrontational. And, you know, when she has a moment where she has to go at the press, uh, uh, this is so great because people have now started a hashtag called Saki Bomb. Hashtag P-S-A-K-I-B-O-N-B, where she really goes to school, goes to town on Peter Ducey of Fox or whatever. But she does so with a smile and with her red hair. And she's so great. I also noticed, I believe, again, I'm not sure Vogue or Ella was in the airport last night. I was walking through. Rarely I do this anymore because of the nature, the declining nature, tragically, given our, our profession here and what we're speaking to you about uh, magazines, but so I was looking at the sort of consumer magazines there, and there is, you know, again, Vogue or L or something, and the cover is for Jill Biden, a first lady for all of us. Really? Uh, you know, he only got 51% of the vote. I'm sorry. Like, she's not a first lady for all of us. Uh, but, you know, thanks very much. You know, great. Like, that's a good way to, you know, make sure that you, um, you know, you alienate and, and you know tens and tens and hundreds of millions of people who might you know take your marketing anyway, and they refuse this is important in the context of vogue and the and the Jill Biden excuse me Dr Jill Biden uh puff piece they refused to put Melania Trump on the cover they that was like an active who decision who is a model who, who is, is literally a model. a model yeah literally a model <laughs> like somebody the whole their whole lives they've been waiting to have a first lady who could hang a dress you know, the way, you know, the way a runway person can hang a dress and then they didn't use her because, of course, she was so evil in their eyes. But I just want to talk about how we talk about Trump and the cult of personality and it's so dangerous and we're living in a time with the cult of personality. And what are we looking at now? We're looking at Andrew Cuomo lay low. We saw Michael Avenatti last month laid low. We are seeing... uh, the Democratic Party, everybody in politics, the Instagram influencer world that you're talking about, all of that, we're talking here about people who are just as susceptible to this weird, desperate desire to mythologize people in American political and public life and to take them and put them on pedestals and write about them uncritically and treat them as though they're heroes. And it is gross like this is not who we are this is not this is not the american way to feel this way about politicians uh whether it's trump or you know i don't know who but it's also john it's like in the case of the aoc case um with her with the quote about being herself's most important thing and i'm remembering there was um like uh uh an Instagram video a few years back of her drinking wine, and eating popcorn and talking about self-care. And I think in, in, to some degree, this, this exists in the, uh, in the, the Jill Biden case and, and Jen Psaki. And um, I think there was a lot of this actually in Michelle Obama. Um, what we're seeing is kind of a conflation of politics and wellness, um, huh, which is, which is, um, really um i think unbelievably powerful as and equally st- stupid but um it's 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 it makes politics about something entirely different you don't have to grasp anything other than this um feeling yes this feeling and this this self-care um uh self-help message which um sort of you know ironically it's none of none of the politics, none of the policies are under uh, that these people are involved in have to have to do with um, um, taking care of themselves. But, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, reliance on others. But yes, this is one of my bugbears. There's a whole chapter in my first book about how we have created an industry around dumbing politics down so that the level of entry into political debate is just your identity. Your, whatever you were born into is sufficient to provide you. Uh, authority to weigh in on uh, uh, complicated political issues. And the gatekeepers of those debates have just just decimated the barriers to entry. But some some politicians are better suited to making lifestyle brands of themselves than others. 
right? Barack Obama has created, has made himself a lifestyle brand and was as president because there wasn't a contentious social issue he didn't weigh in on. It was, that was what he really motivated him. Donald Trump is, creates a lifestyle brand around him. He was a lifestyle brand before he was a politician. Some politicians aren't that capable of that sort of thing. Uh, exhibit A, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. They tried very, very hard to make a cult of personality around her and it just failed and they've pretty much given up. I think they're pretty much acknowledging they're saddled with this thing and they don't know what to do with it. I think they've beaten this strategic retreat and they're hoping that, you know, she will, you know, basically she's a product. They're going to take her back. They're going to retool her. They'll bring her out. There'll be Kamala Harris relaunch. There'll be a new, there'll be a relaunch of Kamala Harris. And part of the story will be, it was a rocky beginning. It was a rocky opening for Kamala Harris, but she put her head down and she studied and she learned and she listened and da, da, da. there's a lot of, by the way, blame going around uh, about her uh, chief of, it's all her chief of staff's fault. What she really needs is Donna Brazil. If they'd only bring in Donna Brazil to be her chief of staff, then she would have some political, you know, she would have a sensible political framework in which to, to function. But I just want to go back to, you know, and there's this stuff on the right too. That's why I don't want to just, uh, you're talking about self-care, which is a which is a obviously a hilarious subject. And by the way, I'm in the middle of reading a hilarious novel by Lee Stein called Self Care, which is about the a kind of a, the launch of a product that is half goop and half the wing, um, and it is it is delightful and and screamingly funny so far. Um, uh, but uh, you know uh, when you when you have you have um, horrible horrible idiot morons on the on the on the right who are starting to fill this role absolutely madison cawthorn from north carolina matt gates of course marjorie uh, from florida marjorie taylor green right yeah right and so it is ran a gym yeah um and and in all these cases they kind of do the same thing which is that they're they're there to own the other side and own the libs and do this and do that and they don't know what they're talking about and they mouth off about american politics and and the practical realities behind American politics without ever having read a book from what we can t- one can tell uh, about anything. And so uh, th- this is a disease of the body politic. It does not just take place on the left or it's among liberals. However, liberals fancy that they are not play- that they don't do this. Right. I mean, it is part of the, let's say, cartoonish version of American conservatism that, you know, we believe in heroes. Military heroes are heroes. We have our heroes. And now Don Bongino is a hero and Tucker is a hero and Matt Gates is a hero and this one's a hero and that one's a hero. And so there's a kind of weird Randy and they're all kind of like Howard Rourke or, you know, Dagny Taggart. They're like Randy and heroes or something like that. And this is a disease of, of, of right sort of individualism run amok or some bizarre, you know, caricatured idea about how the world works. But the left is, is Michael Avenatti is the greatest example of this, a coked up lunatic going on television and suddenly everybody's talking, you know, who, who is clearly a deranged person and people are talking about him for president in 2020. Seriously. And now he's going to be in jail for 20 years for having like threat, you know, for having attempted to extort companies. Okay. But I will say, let me not to get all women's studies major on you, but uh, there's something really interesting that in terms of the lifestyle stuff that Abe was talking about on the right, it tends to be dudes or Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, kind of enacting dude like CrossFit Mm -hmm. stuff. And on the left, it tends to be women. You know, the Michelle Obamas, the AOCs, the whatnot. And I will say in terms of capturing that kind of moderate suburban independent voter, the left's message is a lot more appealing to that group, to the to the nonpartisan groups that Noah was was flagging earlier than the right um, right now in terms of our cultural moment. So in that sense, they're on to something that the conservatives haven't quite figured out how to do yet. Okay, Ronan Farrow has a piece just out in The New Yorker on Andrew Cuomo and his treatment of... Uh, an investigation that he himself established in 2013 into corruption in New York State under the provisions of something, it was a Moreland commission, under the provisions of state law, uh, state law written by someone named Moreland. And the idea was it was supposed to investigate corruption in Albany because one in 11 state legislators uh, over the last 30 years or something have been found guilty of uh, corruption or 
scandal or something like that. And uh, the Moreland uh, Commission scandal was that Cuomo shut it down after a year because it was coming too close to him. And this was well known at the time. I wrote about it. The New York Post was crazy about it. The City Journal wrote about it. Everybody, everybody who covered uh, municipal and state government knew that what Cuomo had done with the Moreland Commission was was uh, unacceptable. And Ronan Farrow uh, goes into detail about how um, when he canceled the Moreland Commission, uh, Cuomo called uh, Preet Bharara, who was then the U.S. attorney uh, in New York, called uh, he called Valerie Jarrett, uh, Obama's, you know, conciliary, and said, you got to rein Preet Bharara in. He's coming after me. You do something. He's your guy. Jarrett says she hung up the phone and she wouldn't talk to. She talked to the White House counsel who said it was very inappropriate what Andrew Cuomo had done, possibly a violation of the law. Preet Bharara is interviewed saying, I heard about this. I mean, it was really terrible. Kathleen Rice, who is now a congressman from New York, who was on the Moreland Commission, said he behaved horribly toward me. Uh, you know, um, so where were all of these people last year? You know, great. So the blood is in the water. So, I mean, I actually predicted this in a column last week. The blood's in the water. So now it's all coming out. But it's like there was Andrew Cuomo being elevated into a godhead. And all of these people who knew that he was a corrupt, loathsome creature who was deliberately killing off, brazenly killing off investigations into corruption when they got too close to him, um, said nothing. They said nothing because that's the other part of democratic hero worship is they don't, you know, they weren't going to touch him. He was too useful. He was too useful against Trump. He was a weapon against Trump. People loved him. Oh, he was such a hero. He's having a moment. Where is it? The book, New York Strong. Here's the mountain. We're climbing the love mountain. He's the love gov. Like, what? <clears throat> Preet Bharara is on Twitter 82 times a day. He's got a podcast through, you know, Gimlet, whatever, you know, he couldn't open a mouth about how this guy who was like a big hero actually attempted to have him fired because he just said people should hold on to documents in a potential criminal investigation. And he says nothing. He says nothing. That's what I'm saying. So we were in this sort of hero worship world and somehow that trumps everything and the Democrats humor themselves and liberals humor themselves that this is not how they function. They totally function that way. Who was it who said that, you know, uh, you know, Obama was a light worker. Who was it who said that Obama, you know, was like God, that wasn't us. Right. Well, and that even continues. And this is where actually the, the it's like Jesus Christ. The, that was yeah. Thomas, it was like Christ. Uh, but the, but this is where the, the kind of elite, uh, misreading of what the average American, not, you know, just like crazy Trump voters, as they think of them, it, it's, it, it rolls off the tongue. There was a New York Times reporter who went on, see, uh, I think it was on CNN or MSNBC this weekend talking about Obama's birthday party and said, well, we don't really have to worry about this. You know, my reporting shows that most people understand that the people attending Obama's birthday party are, are sophisticated, probably vaccinated. Like it's this whole idea of, we don't do those bad things that other people do, but it's very, it's very class, uh, a lot of class snobbery there, a lot of uh, elite snobbery, and people immediately pick up on that. And, and I mean, it was obviously all over social media, but it's not just partisans who pick up on that. It's a contempt for a way of life that some people feel is invested with a lot of value. So like, if you don't think it's great to party with a former president of Martha's Vineyard and fly in on your private jet like John Kerry did, you're not a sophisticated person probably. So there, that that kind of class rage is weirdly becoming more of a thing as well. And it didn't used to be in our politics. Right. Okay. Let's talk about Bambi. You've heard me talk about Bambi before, because, you know, if you are uh, running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap. $70,000 a year on average? Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, uh, was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager 
will help craft HR policy and maintain your compliance for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. That dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, Andrew Cuomo uh, is toast. I said it last week. It's ever clearer that he's toast. Um, he... Every, people are now telling uh, uh, reporters that he thinks he can hang in there. Maybe he's trying to make a deal where he's like, let me stay and I won't run for re-election. Um, I, uh, Carl Heastie, the head of the uh, say assembly, has basically said he's got the votes to impeach him. And then presume, and by the way, the impeachment will not just focus on the... Uh, allegations of sexual and and workplace harassment but will go into the covid nursing home deaths and the book deal and other aspects of his loathsome governorship um like anybody have any uh and any notions about what should happen i don't know about what should happen i mean he should resign what what i'm most curious about is uh, if the when and if the moment comes that he's out, um, and I and I believe it will come sooner rather than later, is there ever anything from him by way of acknowledgement that he is is to blame here in any sense, or is it all to to the end up up into and including his his leaving the the stage? Is it? Um, because of an unjust attack on me, I'm 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 leaving. I think we can all anticipate the answer to that question. I mean, he's a raging narcissist and delusional. There's no way he would ever acknowledge anything that he did to put himself in this position. What I'm most curious about is whether the homosexuals will admit that they were taken in by their own fantasy that they create they created a reality for themselves that was more pleasant than the real one and dwelled in it at the expense of at the expense of American civics, uh, you know, good governance. No, he'll, he'll look, he'll go away for however he's either he's ousted or he leaves. He'll go away for a few years. He'll establish a family foundation and he'll become like Bill Clinton has. He'll be completely rehabbed by the liberal mainstream uh, after going away for a little while. And, and he'll be, you know, invited to all the best parties for, you know, till the day he dies. I don't know. I I mean, don't the know. same long knives are out for his, his brother. And it was a CNN correspondent or, or uh, anchor. You hear the same, you know, rumblings in the media about how Time Warner doesn't know what to do with this guy and wants to get rid of him. Both of them are on their way out, and it's just a staggering reversal of fortune from where both of these people were twelve months ago. They were at the top of the world. People loved Bill Clinton. People loved Bill Clinton. They liked him personally. He treated them well. He looked, he looked into their eyes as though they were, you know, the most important person that he had ever met. Clinton had, uh, had an EQ, right? Like, uh, be off the charts about how to seduce people. And I'm not talking about women here. I'm talking about just sort of like ordinary people. And they, they were, they wanted to be around him and they liked him. There is nobody on earth who wants to be around Andrew Cuomo. Trust me. He is one of the most charmless people who has ever lived. Uh, his political success is a result of naked will, a good last name, um, and 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 a, and a the naked will to do whatever it is necessary to uh, push his agenda. And I, I'll say again, he did a lot of good things. I mean, the tragedy of Andrew Cuomo is that he was an effective governor. Um, and the tragedy of Andrew Cuomo is that he he built things and he saved charter schools and uh, for all kinds of bad, probably mostly for bad reasons. I, I, but the results are there. I'm 
I've actually got to disagree a little bit here. I'm okay. inclined to agree with Christine in that he, and it was to my great surprise, and I was completely immune to it, he seemed to have some sort of charismatic hold on people during COVID. They loved him on some personal, faux personal level, the way they did Bill Clinton. Uh, it was short-lived. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, the, the sort of de- the defining aspect of his public presence for the entirety of career of his career as it was with Clinton. But he he sort of whipped up some sort of mesmeric effect on on some people. So I I don't know that he's gone forever. I mean, in the absence of Trump, to whom he was a counterweight, that never would have happened. That was very situational. Um, uh, And he responded to the situation uh, with a kind of a desperate excitement because he was enjoying something that he had never enjoyed. You know, Uh, it was a very, it was a very heady experience for him. uh, And it lasted three, three and a half months. And then the bodies started to pile up. Yeah. Um, and, and that was when the Cuomo roadshow kind of started to roll up quietly before anybody really understood the, the severity and the size of this horrible thing that he had, you know, done inadvertently, but that he had done nonetheless with the nursing homes. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't know. I mean, that was a, that was, that was three months out of a career and, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. Clinton, that was Clinton's career. Right. I mean, in an odd way was Clinton's ability, um, to uh, connect to people, George W. Bush's as well. I mean, the, the, this unique ability to connect with people, not only on an individual level and on group level, but, but, but nationally at, mm-hmm. at certain moments, um, and, Cuomo, you know, was just the anti-Trump, I think. But we'll, I mean, we'll either see or we won't see how he's going to go around raising money and running a foundation. I have no clue because who would who would give him any money? Why would anybody give him money? What what good is it to give him money? Um, you know, at least maybe if you give Clinton money, you might have a chance to get on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. Oh, I went there. I went there. I'm sorry. And uh, with that, we will call halt until tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, and Noam, John Podhoretz, keep the candle burning.